Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's going on, Todd? Hey, Corey. Hey, John. Hey. So he said, hey, John, because we have a very special guest, Senator John Johnson, with us today, and we're pretty excited about that. So we're just going to kick it off right away. Senator Johnson, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who, uh, what district do you represent, and how did you get into politics? So I, I represent District 3. It was renamed District 3, and uh, it's part of Weber County, part of uh, Morgan County, and part of Summit County. And so I, I live in North Ogden. Uh, we've been here for quite a while. I, uh, I was a professor at Utah State, but I took early retirement this summer, so not doing that anymore. And how did you get into politics? How did you, why did you decide to run in the first place? Well, it, it was a combination of things. Uh, I, I worked on the referendum on the taxes, kind of in the background, really. I, I offered a lot of the uh, financial support for it. And, and uh, a lot of those people actually asked me to run. And hmm. so it was interesting. I uh, originally was going to run for the House and uh, ended up running for the Senate. So it was fun. Great. And you're in your second term, is that right? No, well, this is the end of my first term. So this is the fourth year. I'm up for re-election now. So. Gotcha. All right, good stuff. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, both because we uh, we really like the work that you do, but, but also uh, in particular, the DEI work that you've done and how it's moved through the, the legislature. I know you worked with um, Katie Hall as well. Um, Representative Katie Hall. So we're wondering if you could give us kind of a, a, background. a back, yeah, backgrounder on, on the bill and how you came to it. I know you've been working on it for the last couple of years, how it's, how it's moved through the, the legislature this year and, and where you expect it to go. But start with uh, what is it and what does it do? Well, so, so this, this work actually began uh, quite, a, quite a while ago. Last year, I had a bill uh, that simply was going to close down the DEI departments at the universities. Uh, we ended up uh, negotiating a, a deal where we were just going to study it over the interim. So this summer, uh, been working quite a bit with with different university presidents, and uh, you know, and and last year also Katie Hall had a bill, and it that that bill was actually just going to. Uh, uh, get rid of the uh, statements that people had to make in order to be employed at the university or in, to get into graduate programs. And so, uh, you know, we worked quite a bit over the summer and uh, we decided that since I had become kind of a flashpoint on the whole thing that uh, I probably ought to not run the bill uh, and uh, ended up having Keith Grover run it in the, the Senate, but it began in the House. And uh, it was an interesting process because I, I, we, we had hundreds of people involved uh, talking to a lot of different people, uh, seeking out the best advice. Uh, the bills last year actually, actually uh, started at the Manhattan Institute and, uh, you know, they were kind of model legislation. Uh, in the course, though, of, of studying this, this issue, uh, there was a decision made to really uh, go back to the drawing board and redraft what was going on. And so uh, we ended up with a very unique bill. I mean, it was Katie Hall's bill, really. 
And uh, I, I think that it's probably going to become the model legislation for, for other states uh, because it so thoroughly uh, addresses the issues that are involved with the, with the DEI programs. So that's, you know, that's kind of uh, where it went. I mean, uh, Katie, Katie did a lot of the leg, most of the legwork, I would say. Um, you know, we had a lot of help, though, from the University of Utah, many, many discussions there, uh, many discussions with the higher board. Uh, when uh, Jeff Landward come on as the, the acting commissioner, uh, he was very uh, helpful in kind of looking at what's going on at, at all of the universities and then, and then drafting some uh, you know, some things that became the precursor to this. Of course, uh, Governor Cox, uh, his staff was involved with it. And I, they, they were very helpful in kind of moving this in the right direction, I think. Uh, you know, there was a whole list of things that happened after last year, of course. There are two Supreme Court decisions that weren't mentioned much in the, the debates, but I think they were kind of central to to you know the feeling that we really did have to move forward with it uh one was the uh the uh students for fair admissions versus harvard university and the university of north carolina uh that that case was was instrumental in kind of uh framing uh the discussions and then there was another case 303 creative that was a case in denver uh where where the Equal Rights Commission in, in Colorado actually went after a, uh, a web uh, development company. And that case really uh, cemented the idea that, uh, that we really should have uh, free expression, I mean, freedom of thought. And I think that's where a lot of the discussion centered around the idea that, you know, at a university, the things that seemed to be off the table were things that we really did have to discuss and that there needed to be uh, more discussion rather than less and that these topics really should be debated and they should people should be open to uh, discussions about them. And so, you know, that that I, I think that kind of formed the foundation for it. That makes a lot of sense. So I wonder if you could describe a little bit more detail what it does and what it doesn't do. Because I think the critics are out there saying this is a way to to whitewash our history and to pretend like things that happened in the past didn't happen in the past and that sort of thing. I don't think that's what you're getting at, but I wonder if you could be a little bit more specific. About well, what well, number one, number one, uh, you know, their academic freedom at universities is really important. And uh, this bill doesn't limit at all what professors can do in the classroom. It doesn't limit what they can, uh, uh, what what can be discussed on campus. In fact, it opens it up to to more debate. Uh, a lot of people say that the the you know the progress they've made with race relations is going to be hampered, and I I think that's uh, far different. Uh, you know what the what the bill basically does is it says that uh, we're not going to discriminate at our universities on the basis of of race, right? And, uh, you know, uh, all of the protected things are still there at the universities where uh, all it simply said is that when, when you're, you know, we, we wanted to focus more on the success of students. So, 
So when you talk about student success, what does that mean? Well, you know, one of the things we found that was really working okay was the, was the help they gave first time college students. Well, you know, our, you know, my point with that was, well, if it's for first time college students, let's just make it for first time college students. Then we can focus on the individual rather than a group that an individual belongs to. And, you know, a lot of a, a lot of people say that, you know, this is really focused on, you know, putting kids down or not allowing, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of belonging on campus. Really, what this does is it just takes race out of the equation, right? Uh, no discrimination. We need to approach people based on difficulties that they're having. And that's why the focus really centered on student success which I think is important, right? And, and given the free Supreme Court case, you know, a lot of people say, well, that only dealt with admissions. Well, you know, affirmative action, you know, uh, really, you know, changed over, over time, but we had to make sure that it really didn't violate, if you look at the Supreme Court case, that it didn't violate uh, what had already been done in the Civil Rights Act. I mean, they gave an exception for college admissions in order to uh, in right. order to balance the class and have diversity in a class. Uh, and I, I don't really think that's the problem right now. You know, and, and when you talk about students belonging on campus, sure, we, we need we need resource centers where students can go to get help. You know, first time college students or students that grew up in poverty or, you know, and a lot of these things may be correlated uh, with, you know, race or gender or anything else, but it, but they're not, they focus on individuals rather than, uh, rather than uh, groups. And I think that was the main point that we were trying to push. Now, of course, you know, uh, you know, Katie, Katie is really the spokesman for this, uh, for this bill, but yeah, I can talk about my involvement in, 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 in things that, that I did, but, but I think ultimately it was, it was up to her what, what ended up in this bill. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That was a good explanation. And I, and I think most of our listeners, if not all, would say, yeah, we want, we want equal opportunity. And if there are, there are groups that are underrepresented, it makes sense to have some additional outreach. But I think what's happened now is diversity, equity, and inclusion offices have become have become much more than just trying to get more people involved. And, and inclusion has, has taken on a much new, uh, much larger meaning. Rather than trying to get people to feel included in uh, on the campus, it's it's now a, a series of of requirements that um, that you, you know. It's interesting if people have some questions about this, I would encourage them to go watch the the uh, debate of the bill in the Senate Education Committee. Of course, I chaired that committee, so I'm very familiar with what was going on. Uh, but if you if you watch that, I, you know, there were more racial minorities on the side uh, supporting the bill than there were on the side uh, against the bill. Yeah. And uh, the discussion actually was quite interesting. I was going to just mention that... Um... Uh, you know, in the name of DEI, uh, we see Harvard, you know, requiring uh, Asian students scoring 200 points higher, you know, on their SATs than 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 African-Americans and and even Harvard and other schools allowing their Jewish students to be bullied and harassed in a way that they would never allow or tolerate for Muslim or 
um, African-American students. And the Democrats in the House and the Senate, after the Senate passed the DEI bill, they had all coordinated to wear black and they went out and held a press conference at the Capitol um, wearing all black. And for whatever reason, the 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 male legislators were standing in the back and the female legislators were standing in the front and a lot of national commentators that really backfired on them. Um, I, you know, John, I know you had mentioned one uh, to me earlier, but I listened to the Matt Walsh podcast over the the weekend. He called it the DEI funeral. The Democrats are holding the DEI. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, it was it was interesting because right after that press conference, they had Christopher Rufo who was actually instrumental at the Manhattan Institute and in Florida with uh, with uh, Governor DeSantis and uh, the reforms they had there. Uh, he tweeted out, you know, just what you were talking about, Todd, with uh, uh, with the guys standing in the back. And and uh, that that seemed to be a theme that went around. But, you know, I mean, that that was. I mean, last time I looked at it, it was getting about 500,000 views, uh, hmm. that particular tweet. So it, it really did take off. And you're right, Todd, there were a lot of commentators that talked about yeah. it as well. Well, and, and Matt Walsh on Daily Wire even went as far as to say what you did, John, that he felt like this was the most comprehensive de- anti-DEI bill that has been passed. And he thinks it'll be a model for other states. But, you know, he, he was talking about how just having the men in the back, they, they just kind of knew their place, you know, <laughs> with DEI, you know, a white male has got to stand behind, you know. Anyway, I, I don't, I, you know, whenever a political stunt uh, is pulled like that on either side of the aisle, some, it has the potential to backfire. And I think that that particular one backfired in a big way. Yeah, I, you know, when I, when I read through the bill, I was actually quite proud of wh- where it ended up. I think the, the drafters uh, on staff did an excellent job. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Carrie Ann Lisenby was very involved and, and, uh, and Katie Hall, of course, uh, was stellar. I mean, uh, I think she spent a lot of time and the, working through the language and making sure that this wasn't, uh, you know, an anti-race type thing, right? That it, that it really focused on how do we help students succeed? You know, because initially, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I at least believed we should have pulled the funding out. I thought we were spending way too much money on it. But, but the idea is that, you know, they were doing a lot of things that made a difference for students. And I, I think that's where we kind of, you know, felt like, uh, you know, that part needed to survive. Of course, you know, like Todd was saying there, when, uh, when the three university professors from the, from the Ivies really showed up in Congress and Stefanik uh, actually interviewed them, I think that kind of blew up. And I, thought, I think that was the beginning of the end, I, I think, for a lot of these DEI programs. And people found out that, you know, maybe, maybe we ought to be focusing on other things. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Is there another uh, bill that you're working on that you want to share with? Well, I, I just had one release that's apparently liaison bill that I think is going to be really important. If you uh, going into Wasatch school district, for instance, they hired apparently liaison that was Hispanic. They were having a hard time with a lot of the Hispanic students where the parents didn't speak English very well. But they hired a parent liaison that went out and worked with the community 
And they ended up having so many volunteers that came into the school to help them. Uh, and, you know, of, of course, I guess when you're, when, when the moms show up, uh, the kids act a little better. And uh, it, it's really been successful. And I think there, there, there's a possibility of that moving to other things. Uh, I've got some other uh, higher ed uh, uh, reform uh, that is going to come out fairly soon. The bills aren't quite drafted all the way yet, and we're still having conversations with many people. So, Good stuff. All right. Well, we look forward to those. Senator John Johnson, thanks so much for all your thanks, hard work. John. We'll see you in the morning. Thank you. <laughs> and you'll see Todd in the morning. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a bunch. We'll see you. Now we're delighted to have new representative Paul Cutler join us. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Corey. I've uh, listened to uh, you and uh, Senator Weiler quite a bit on political as heck and uh, glad to be with you. Hey, watch your language there, Paul. (laughs) One of our two. Just kidding. Welcome. I'm glad you could you could join us here, and uh, and if you're a listener, then we got to have you on more often. You, this is your first. Uh, oh, last year was your first session. Is that right? Last year was the first session. Uh, so I'm I'm new to the legislature. I spent 12 years in local government uh, as a city council member and a mayor, complaining about the legislature, about what they would do to us, how the legislature thinks they know best about everything. And so now it's a little awkward to be on the other side of the fence, uh, uh, actually back telling local government what to do. <laughs> Perfect. So um, in, in what's your local government experience? Tell us a little bit about uh, what you've done up to this point and why you decided to run. For- uh, so, so like uh, Todd, I'm from Davis County. I was a city council member and, and mayor of Centerville. And uh I was enjoying uh, not being a part of anything for a number of years. And then Tim Hawks uh, decided he was done with the legislature and, and called me. And I said, you know, that's something I I think I could contribute to. I want to see uh, reasonable voices in the legislature. And we're struggling with growth and how to handle growth. And I think it's really important that we plan ahead. And uh, if growth is coming, no matter what happens, and we can either plan for it and have a good experience or we can pretend it's not happening and have a bad experience. Cool. That's good stuff. So I want you both to know real quick that you represent my parents. And I just had a conversation oh. with my dad. And uh, you're, you're going to get an earful. Um, I will, I'll, I'll spare you today, but uh, both of you will get an earful. But We, we, we like hearing from constituents. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect, because it's going to happen. So uh, can you tell us uh, one or two bills that you're working on or – uh, especially when it comes to growth, are you working so- on something along those lines, or what? What, uh, what are you? I am, but w- w- one I think that would be interesting to your listeners is one that I'm well, working on with Todd. Todd's the Senate sponsor, and that's Road Rage. It's gotten a lot of attention lately. Uh, there have been some really high-profile incidents uh, down in your neck of the woods, uh, Corey. There was, of course, the very tragic case last year where. Um, uh, uh, man was killed out when he was driving his, uh, his convertible Porsche, uh, not his, not involved at all. Other cars were in, in a road rage uh, escalating situation. 
And uh, so a prosecutor came to me and said, hey, we're seeing more and more of this road rage, and I don't feel like I have the tools to go after these people. They're just getting released with a slap on the wrist. And uh, the highway patrol has been very, very concerned about this. If you look at the statistics, there's been a, there was a big jump uh, in, in 2020. 2017, 18, 19, there were about uh, 10 fatalities a, a year, 10 to uh, 10, 12. And uh, in 2020, it really jumped up with, uh, and is that because of COVID? Is that because people were cooped up? Is that because of growth? It's not clear, but even in 2023, we're still 20% above the five-year average. And the, the statistics that the Highway Patrol uh, uh, keeps track of just keep increasing. Now, they don't have a crime road rage. What they've been doing is they've just been searching dispatch reports and police reports. And the number of times road rage is mentioned has gone from you know, roughly the 500s in, in uh, 2020 uh, up to 700s in 2022 and almost 750 in 2023. So it just continues to to increase and be a problem uh, on our on our roadways and the highway patrol and other law enforcement at, uh, officers have asked, can you give us some tools to help? So the first thing we're doing is defining road rage legally and then starting to measure it. So instead of just looking for keywords, it'll be how many times have people been arrested? How many times are they charged? How many times are they convicted? So we have some real data to say. Are things really getting worse or are we just imagining they're getting worse as, as, as we grow? Now, the next thing it does is add increased penalties. Now, some people might say, well, you know, road rage is a crime of passion <laughs> or emotion and, and you won't be able to do anything about it. But, but I believe we can and we should do what we can. So what it does is it takes a, an offense. If you're doing it, if you've committed an offense, uh, and the important thing is there's no new crimes. It's taking things that are already criminal and saying, if you're doing it with the intent to escalate or intimidate uh, an, uh, an incident that's happened on a roadway, then you uh, can be guilty of road rage and we'll raise it from a, say, a class C misdemeanor for careless driving. Uh, you might be you know, changing lanes in front of a car, trying to swerve and intimidate them that'll be raised to a class B and there'll be a minute uh, minimum fine. Uh, and then we're taking these uh, extra fines on average, about $500 per incident and putting it into an education and awareness fund. So we start seeing more uh, advertisements and awareness about uh, road rage, similar to, you know, zero fatalities and the advertisements we get there. That's really interesting. That's really good stuff. So in, uh, in the research that you've done, are you finding that road rage is, is it, is it percolating based on like people driving slow or just traffic being serious? That, that, that's a, that's a good question. Now the statistics they have show that it's mostly men. It's mostly <laughs> men between 25 and I think it's 45 or 49. So that rules taught out. He's uh, he's no longer I'm way too uh, old. I'm way too old. He's, uh, he's too old. So he's timed out. <clears throat> And, uh, but, but a lot of people speculate, is it because we have people in Utah hogging the, the left lane? Is it because Utahns are so, such bad drivers and people are angry? Is it because there's so many more cars on the road? Yeah. It's, it's not clear the causes. What's clear is it's increasing mm -hmm. and it's unacceptable because 
people are getting, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of crashes a year that are unnecessary because people are, are, are angry. Yeah. That's good stuff. So a lot of times I think we think of road rage as like people getting out of the car and fighting each other, but there, there is that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also people intentionally crashing into, or there was a case, a well-known case where the, the person tried to crash into the other car. There's such a oh bad driver they missed. <laughs> and, but it was many witnesses saw it and they, and they said, no, this person was trying to intimidate and, and hurt the other person. Wow. But because they didn't hit him, the prosecutor was struggling. How do I, how do I charge them with oh, a crime? Yeah, perfect. Well, I'm glad you're doing this. Pro tip to those drivers. If you slam into someone to run them off the road, your insurance is not going to cover that. <laughs> so Yeah, I was thinking of Ta uh, Kathy Bates. Uh, was it fried green tomatoes when she got mad in the parking lot and slammed her car into a younger woman's <laughs> yeah. car? And she's like, and I'm older and have more insurance. <laughs> anyway. So uh, I don't know if you get that. I'm, I'm probably uh, dating myself by referencing a movie from 25 years ago, but good stuff. You know, interestingly, Corey, the, the legislature is always, it's fascinating because Libertas has come out against the road rage bill. Uh, I guess they believe that everyone has the freedom and liberty to kill other people by getting angry and cutting off cars <laughs> on the road. And I say that tongue in cheek a little bit. I mean, I, I love Libertas when I agree with them and I do agree with them on you know, probably more often than not, but um, well, it's so all. What would be their strongest argument against it? Well, they they just don't like any enhanced penalties, so they want people charged for the crimes that they commit. They don't like any, like you know, thinking behind the scenes. Well, what what was this person doing, uh, or why what, why did this person do it? They just want you charged for for the actual crime that you commit. But it's interesting to me when I see things like that because I I say, well, what about the liberty and the freedom of the two people who died innocently? <laughs> you know, because of the road rage incident. And, um, you know, I see uh, other, uh, th there's a there's a disability law center in, in Utah. And I, I agree with them 80% of the time and 20% of the time, I'm like, come on guys, you're making it worse for disabled people by by taking this position. So I, I respect everyone. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, mock anyone, but it is interesting to see what kind of, you know, it's always fascinating to me when the ACLU and, and Libertas are agreeing on an issue. And then on other issues, they'll be on polar opposites. But um, politics makes strange bedfellows. So yeah, that's for sure. All right. Well, that's a great one. You got another one for us, Paul? What else? Uh, another one that's really important to me. And in fact, this is one that Todd worked on a little bit uh, last year is uh, HB 272, uh, keeping children safe from family violence. And uh, last year, you know, Todd and the lieutenant governor, there was a big focus on our criminal uh, justice system to recognize domestic violence, to get our uh, offenses right, to protect people on the on the criminal side. Uh, this is an effort to continue that and look at the courts side of this in, the, in our uh, in child custody situation. So I'm working with uh, uh, Senator Mike McKell as the co-sponsor there, and we've been working with our uh, child uh, court commissioners who deal with the child custody uh, cases a lot with uh, some of the judges and trying to to see where where how can we ensure that we put the child first and always uh, we, we we say that but there's a few things in our laws that uh, tend to punish in, in in an effort to get the parents to behave children are left unsafe and so this clarifies, it says, no matter what else, you've got to put
put the child's safety and health first before you try to fix problems with the parents. Um, and so we could uh, spend another 20 minutes talking about this if, if you want, but you'll, you'll. Uh, As the, the sheriffs weighed in on this one. Uh, yes, LELC, the criminal justice, uh, or CCJJ, they've uh, weighed in. They said they're in favor of this. They're supporting it. It's a strong support. Um, domestic violence people, of course, are in support. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor's office, uh, uh, a, a large number of uh, folks have, have gotten behind it. Great. Great stuff. All right. Any last questions, Todd? Well, I just, I don't have any last questions, but I, I think Paul has been a great addition to the Utah House and uh, his experience as a mayor of Centerville, I think is is very, very helpful. And he, he's a great guy. I enjoy working with him. And, um, you know, we overlap a few of the same constituents. So it's fun. It's fun to to, to work with him. And um, anyway, I, I'm glad um, he's there. It's been fun. It's another person to laugh at Todd's jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Only the funny ones, of course. If we only laughed at the funny ones, we wouldn't be laughing that much. <laughs> All right, now. Hey, All right. Thanks for having thanks me on. So uh, Look, at Look at the time. Look at the time. All right. Thanks, Corey. See we'll you see you next time. week. Thanks.